That is a beautiful song, and uh, so important as we set up today's preaching text, our only hope is Christ. And, And by extension, the church. I mean, the church is the hope of the world. And sometimes I marvel at at God's plan, right? That he would entrust such an important mission to us. He would say, I want you to go out into the world. I want you to be the hope of the world, the extension of Jesus Christ. That's a high calling. And it's something to be excited about. It's something to be filled with joy over. And at the same time, it's, if we're being honest, it's kind of heavy, isn't it? Say, we are... Not because of ourselves, but because we are ambassadors of Christ. We are the hope of the world. Now, Duncan read already for us today's preaching text. And this text, which is 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 to 5, is, in my opinion, the hardest-hitting text in all of 1 Timothy. It it might be the hardest-hitting text in all of the pastoral epistles. It's up there. For sure, which means that the preaching this morning is going to have a bit of a somber tone, a little bit of a heaviness to it. Uh, It's going to challenge us to look inward on ourselves. And the best way to receive this message is not to be thinking about all of the people that we might point the finger to, which is a temptation, let's admit it, but to just think of ourselves. This is something I've been wrestling with myself, is to apply these verses to myself and to ask the hard question, am I a blessing or a burden to the church? And if all of us could do that without coming up with a list of people that we could point our fingers at, but rather just look at ourselves and say, you know, Where are there areas that I might need to make some changes? Where are some areas where I might need to make some improvements? Uh, Then we'll all be better off. Now, on the other hand, what I don't want to do is to to put a a burden on anyone and then say, okay, at the end of the service, just go home and, and simmer underneath this burden all week. There's hope, right? The hope is the the mercy and the love and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's treatment, in other words, for the sin sickness in the church. This is maybe not going to be what you might call the feel-good sermon of the year, but it is so important. If we're going to have a healthy, productive, outreaching hands and feet kind of church, hands and feet of Christ kind of church, then this sermon is really, really important. Today, my assignment compels me to take the role of an oncologist, a cancer doctor who has the unhappy obligation to discuss the signs and the symptoms of cancer. That's got to be one of the hardest jobs for a doctor to do, is to sit down with with someone and say, look, you have these symptoms, it's serious. Then to go through the test and then to have to come back and say, you know, it's really grave. And and that's kind of the role that I'm in today. Uh, Just as an oncologist must know how to identify cancer in the physical body, If he or she is going to save anyone's life, so a pastor, so elders need to be able to identify and then to treat 
spiritual cancer in the local church if we're going to be of any temporal or eternal benefit to the church. So it's one of the hardest parts of eldering uh, to bring the bad news, just like it's one of the hardest parts of being a doctor, I'm sure. Uh, and of course, bedside manner matters. So I, I hope that as I deliver this message that, that it will it'll be delivered in such a way that the truth is not compromised, but I don't want to uh, needlessly hammer away at something. Let the Spirit of God, by the Word of God, do His work. Today, then, is about how to spot cancer in the church. It's not pleasant, but it will save the life of the church. Open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to be reading verses 3 to 5. And this is the only sermon today, in case you're wondering. Uh, So we're spending a lot of time on a few verses because these are really, really crucial verses. Would you please stand? 1 Timothy chapter 6. These are the words of God. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. This produces envy dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. These are the words of God. Let's pray. Oh God, these are serious verses. And I pray that you would bless us by reading them and preaching them and receiving them and applying them. That we would be a healthy church. And that you would set us on a course for prolonged health and fruitfulness and effectiveness. We, we want to make disciples. We want to be a witness in this city for the gospel of redemption by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we know we can't do that if we are sin sick among ourselves. Our only hope is you, Lord. Have mercy on us. Cure us of all our spiritual sickness and help us to be healthy, a healthy body, ready to receive new believers, ready to make new disciples, ready to go out into the world with the good news of the gospel. Just as no patient likes to hear bad news from the doctor, I know this is going to be hard to receive. So I pray for those who are hearing your word this morning, that you would help them to receive your word by your spirit Pray that you would convict those among us who need to be convicted. Help us to be rich in compassion toward one another. Uh, Help us to be quick to forgive. 
And may our love for you and our love for one another cover over a multitude of sin. Glorify yourself at this church. Build us up that we may be effective servants of Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So when you go to the doctor, you you usually go to the doctor because you have some kind of a symptom. You're you're not feeling well. Your body is just not operating the way that you wish it would. It's it's not doing the things that it's supposed to do. There's some limitation. There's some pain. There's something obvious. So you go to the doctor and you say, I have this symptom or that symptom or this list of symptoms. Likewise, in this text, where we're going to begin is we're going to look at the symptoms of a sick, uh, a sin-sick church. We're going to look at the symptoms of a sin-sick church. There's five symptoms that Paul gives us here. One, envy. Envy is that destructive need to be in competition. It's this comparison game where where I look at you and you look at me and I envy who you are, what you have, your role in the church, the blessings that God has given to you. I, I want to be you or I want you to be less than you are. I want you to be less than me. It's this competition. We're not glad for each other when we're envious. It's this destructive need to be in competition. And at its root, envy is the fruit of bitter selfishness. It says, I want something for myself. I want gain and blessing for myself, and I begrudge anyone else who has what I want, who is who I want to be, who has a role that I wish I was in. That's a symptom of a sin-sick church, envy. The second symptom that Paul gives us is dissension. Dissension is insubordination. Dissension is, I will not submit to you. I will not serve you. I will not help you. It's disharmony in the body. It's it's disunity among the members of the church. So that when we get together, we put on the plastic face and we smile at each other all the while under our breath. We're saying, I don't really like that person. I hope I don't see so-and-so at church today. I'm not going to have them over to my house. It's dissension. And dissension has a particular flavor of dissension against those in authority. And it's not only the elders, dissension against whoever it is, a steward over a ministry, somebody who takes initiative to serve, uh, somebody in our children's ministry. doesn't matter what the position is, but it's, it's this begrudging of somebody for their, their function and role within the church. Third uh, symptom of a sin-sick church is slander. Slander is gossip, and particularly false gossip, false speak about another. When we say things, and there may be a kernel of truth, but we, we, we take something and we say, I have something juicy to tell you about so-and-so. And then we might even embellish, we might even add a detail or two. That's slander. To twist something, to, to share something poisonous off our tongue about one another. It's the third symptom of a sin-sick church. So we've got envy, dissension, slander. 
The fourth symptom is evil suspicions. Evil suspicions. This is always expecting the worst of somebody. Uh, we, we create these um, hypothetical scenarios. I bet you I know what he's thinking. I bet you I know what they're saying at home. I bet you I know their hidden agenda. I bet you I know. I, and it's just not extending the benefit of the doubt to anyone. It's always being suspicious, paranoid. What's, what's their real agenda? What are they really trying to accomplish? And then the fifth symptom of a sin-sick church is constant friction, which is like dissension, except it doesn't have that same insubordination piece. This constant friction, just people not getting along, a lack of harmony, a lack of brotherhood, factions in the church. This group over here doesn't like that group over there. And it's the best kept secret at church. We come together and we sing, our only hope is you, our only hope is you. This group doesn't like that group. That group doesn't like this group. Constant friction. These are the five symptoms of a sin-sick church. And a, a church that, that has even a hint of this, that will grow. But as these symptoms become more and more obvious, the church is in more and more trouble. And it's more and more urgent for someone to rightly diagnose the problem and to treat it. Let's just take a look in the scripture where these symptoms can be found. They're in 1 Timothy 6, halfway through verse 4. So we're taking this out of order. So we're taking it in a logical order. We're going to put it back together. So go halfway through verse 4. So these people that are doing something, that this produces symptoms. Do you see it? Envy dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. Those are the symptoms. When we see these things, we know the church is in peril. We know that the church is not healthy. So after we identify the symptoms, then we have to ask the question, uh, who's at risk? Who's at risk of demonstrating these symptoms? So we all know, right, if somebody is a, a, a regular smoker, they're more prone to cancer. There's other lifestyle habits that we know that that, that makes that person at risk. Well, what makes someone at risk to falling into these sin-sick symptoms and, and making the church unhealthy? Well, there's three qualities that Paul gives us about at-risk people. Those who are most at risk of displaying these sin-sick symptoms are those who are depraved in mind. That's the first one. What does it mean to be depraved in mind? Well, in a, another way of saying that is someone who's unsaved, someone who just cannot understand the gospel. They may profess to believe, but, but really if you sit down with them and they just you go through the, the basic doctrines of the gospel, the holiness of God, the sinfulness of humanity, our need for a savior to, to pay the penalty for our sin. Uh, so, the, the, the idea that once you have given your sin to Jesus, then your sin has been fully dealt with. When Jesus died and went into the cross, he took your sin, if you give it to him, to the grave. And it's dealt with. It's over. As Jesus says, it is finished. 
And then Jesus came back to life. Oh, glorious day. And we've been made new and we've got a new nature and we can live out of a holy heart and a desire for righteousness. We can be hungry and thirsty for righteousness and we're no longer wretched sinners. We are redeemed saints and we ought to live out of that new nature to the glory of God. So those are the basics. Somebody could come to church their whole life and, and somewhere along what I just said, not understand it. And, and those people are depraved in mind, even while they call themselves by the name of Christ. And, and they are at risk of becoming envious, dissentious, uh, slanderous, caring and bearing evil suspicions, and producing constant friction in the church. See, this is why it's so serious. You see, at the end of the age, when Christ returns, we all have an appointment with the Lord of glory. My number one responsibility and the number one responsibility of the elders of this church is to prepare you for that day. It's not to entertain anybody. It's not to have the best running programs in the city of Barrie. Our whole priority must be given to preparing you to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. Which means... If we see these symptoms in your life, we must ask the question, for no other reason than love, might you be depraved in mind? Might you not understand the gospel? Because that would be eternally devastating to meet the Lord Jesus Christ and for him to say, I don't care that you went to church your whole life. Depart from me, I never knew you. That's the first thing, those who are depraved in mind. And these all go together. The second quality of a person who is at risk of demonstrating these symptoms are those who are deprived of the truth. And, and this is related, right? If you're depraved in mind, then you are deprived of the truth. But it's also possible to be deprived of the truth, and to actually be saved. It is possible by the grace and mercy of God to be saved and yet to have a pretty uh, uh, undeveloped understanding of the gospel. To, to not allow yourself to live in the full glory and beauty of the gospel of your salvation. To not know that you're really free. To, to carry shame or oppression or guilt that you don't need to carry. Or whatever it is. So, so there is a, a, a person who maybe is saved, but they're somehow deprived of the truth. There's something that, in spite of their salvation, they're just not quite understanding the depth of the glory of the gospel. So in, in some way, they're unlearned. They have unbiblical convictions and opinions. And I think we've all met people like this, Right? who say something and they say it with such authority and they say, well, Jesus was always uh, non-judgmental. I just heard that recently. That's why I say it. Jesus never judged anybody. And in my mind, I'm thinking, like, have you ever cracked the gospel? He had a few things to say about the Pharisees. He leveled a few woes against them. And you know, there's nobody in the Bible who talked about hell more than Jesus. Why? Is it, is it because he wasn't loving? No, it's precisely because he is love incarnate 
that he leveled those woes, that he gave those warnings, that he said, look, there is a heaven and there is a hell. No one goes to the Father but by me. I mean, Jesus was the opposite of postmodern tolerant. He was an exclusivist, and he made certain claims, and he said, if you don't have this, then you are going to be expelled to the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so we have to be careful. We, those who are uh, deprived of the truth, they, they, they might not be saved, in which case they're depraved in mind. But if they are saved, there's something, there's a hiccup in their doctrine that is preventing them to live out the fullness of the gospel. And in place of the freedom and the joy and the liberty that is theirs in Christ, envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicion and constant friction raise, rises up within them. They become a problem to the church. They become a source of, of sin sickness in the church rather than a blessing. So they are at risk. And then there's a third group of people or a third quality of person uh, which makes someone susceptible to these symptoms. And that is those who imagine that godliness is a means of gain. So these are gain-seeking people. These are people who say, well, there's some benefit that I derive by going to church and calling myself by the name of Christ. There's some benefit I derive by, by going through the motions. There's some benefit that I gain by pretending to be something I'm not. And again, you could have both saved and unsaved people in this category. How many of you ever heard somebody say, I go to church because it helps me feel better about myself. Is that a good motive or a bad motive? Well, both, really. It's good motive. I mean, I think there's no better place to find the, the, the inner peace and the joy that we're all craving. On the other hand, that can be very easily twisted and say, well, I've checked the box. I've gone to church. I sang my songs. Now I can sort of go and live my life the way I want to. So this gain is not always material gain. It could be, I'm lonely. I, I don't have a community, and, and the people at the church are so loving, so I'm going to go to the church so that I'm not alone. Is that good or bad? Well, both, right? It's good, that, I hope. There should be no lonely people in the church, and I think that is, that is an excellent reason to come to the church. But if we never get past that, then it's incomplete, Ultimately, I think what is in view here, and we see this because of what we're going to preach next week, ultimately, uh, what Paul has in mind is those who feel that there's some money to be gained by pretending to be a part of the church for whatever reason. Maybe it's false teachers, as we're going to see, who felt that the, the generosity of the church is worth going through the motions of religious practice in order to receive some material benefit and gain from the coffers of the church. So anyone who is greedy in this sense is susceptible to the symptoms that make a church sin sick. Let's just take a look and see where I found this, the second half of verse 5. So we'll, we'll, let's go back and read the symptoms again too. Verse 4, uh, halfway through. 
the, the symptoms are envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. Among people, so among those who are at risk are the following, who are depraved in mind, so they're not saved. Deprived of the truth, either they're saved and they don't really get all of the doctrines that they should, or they're not saved and so they can't understand the truth. And those who imagine that godliness is a means of gain, they are to the church like smokers are to cancer. They're at risk. They're putting themselves in danger. So the next question we must ask, well, who's to blame for all of this? And this is, sounds very unchristian, doesn't it? Who's to blame? Like, are you honestly saying that from the pulpit? We're actually going to blame somebody? Uh, that doesn't sound very Christian. It doesn't sound very Canadian even. Uh, but yet, Paul actually blames someone for all of this. So, so we have these symptoms. We have those who are at risk. But who are they who take the at-risk people and cause these symptoms to take root and then to flourish? Who are the sin-sick agents, so to speak? Who are they who compel the church into this position of sickness? Those who cause sin sickness in the church do three related things. And this is how the whole passage begins. These are the people to blame. Those who oppose the teaching in 1 Timothy. Anyone who teaches any different doctrine. Anyone, when you're standing up to, to preach and to teach the, the book of 1 Timothy, Timothy, says Paul. It wasn't called 1 Timothy then. But this letter that I've sent to you, when you get up and you open the letter that I sent to you and you, you start teaching it to the church, and by extension, you pastor in Barrie at South Shore, when you open up the words of 1 Timothy, and you do your best to say, like, this is what it says, and this is what we're going to do. And when you start to try to implement this letter, there's going to be people who oppose you. And there will be people who are going to try and teach a different doctrine than what you find here. And by extension, it's not just First Timothy. It's when pastors or preachers or elders or anyone opens up the Bible and says, this is the word of God, and this is what we're going to do, and this is what we're going to believe. There's going to be people who oppose that. There's going to be people who dig in their heels and say, no, I'm not following you there. I'm not going to, I'm not going to accept that. Those are the people to blame, says Paul. Those who teach any different doctrine, because you see, what Paul says is if, if, if someone is opposing 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy or Titus or the book of Romans or the New Testament or the Old Testament, anyone who's opposing the word of God, they're not opposing the messenger. See, nobody opposes me unless I'm wrong about the scripture. And then it shouldn't be an opposition. It should be a matter of coming alongside and exploring the scriptures together. Nobody in, in opposing the word of God opposes the preacher or the elders. They oppose Jesus Christ. Now, honestly, who wants to put themselves in that position? And I know that's a bold claim. Oh, my goodness. Adam is up there saying that if they disagree with what he says, then they're opposing Jesus Christ. Do you have any other way of reading this? 
The role, you see, this is why expositional preaching is so important. The role of the preacher is not to come up and, and tell you. I, I have no right to tell you what I think. I have no idea to tell you my preferences, my opinions. I can't make decisions for you in your, in your life. I can't tell you, well, you need to do this or need to do that. That's, that's too far. That, that's not for any pastor to do. Now, I can give you counsel, but then it's up to you to decide what to do with that counsel. But what I must do, the only thing that I must do, the thing that I'm called to do, the thing that I've committed to the Lord Jesus Christ to do with, to the best of my ability, and, and, and I'm not going to get it absolutely perfect every time, but this is what I'm devoting myself to, is to read and explain the word of God. This is the word of Jesus Christ. Says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine, they don't agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because, you see, Jesus instructed Paul, who wrote the letter to Timothy. And I, like Timothy, am taking this letter... And I'm reading it and explaining it to us so that we can implement it because these are the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ. They come from him. Not from me, not from Timothy, not even from Paul. They come from Christ. And if someone opposes Jesus Christ... It doesn't matter how much they're going through the motions. It doesn't matter about outer displays of godliness... They actually oppose true godliness. They actually oppose true godliness. So, at the end of verse 2, just take a look at it. It says, teach and urge these things. And then we continue on in verse 3. If anyone teaches any different doctrine does, and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness... What I've just said. We're going to find out some things about these people. Those are the people to blame. The problem is it's very difficult to spot these people. It's very difficult with any certainty to say that that's what's happening. It gets, it gets very murky. It gets very difficult to sort of wade through the cloud because everybody's self-presenting as a Christian. Everybody's self Remember, this is an instruction to the church. It's not about unbelievers. It's about people who profess to be believers. And, and everything that these people do who oppose the, the sound doctrine or teach any different doctrine, they oppose Jesus Christ, they oppose true godliness, but they don't, they don't just come out and say, I oppose Jesus. They don't come out and say, I oppose godliness. Rather, Everything they do, they do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This makes it really difficult. How you, they're professing the name of Jesus. And not only that, even while they're opposing Jesus Christ, they're doing it in the name of Jesus Christ, and they're making great displays of godliness. And, and Paul gets into this again in 2 Timothy. So how do you spot them? How do you call them out? How do you with confidence say, well, I think that this is something that needs to be addressed in your life? Well, there's three things that help us to identify who these people are. Who is to blame? Well, Paul gives us three ways that we can identify these people. He says these people are conceited. These people understand nothing. 
And these people crave controversy and quarrels about words. Let's just go through these. Uh, they're conceited. They think more highly of themselves than they ought. Anyone who you could say, you know, that person thinks more highly of himself than he, than he ought or she ought, it doesn't mean necessarily that they are these people, but it's a, it's a red flag. Well, how do you know if somebody thinks more highly of themselves than they ought? The best way to identify someone who thinks too highly of himself or herself is these people are self-appointed. They, they appoint themselves over the church. And they say, I am the authority here. You see, elders don't appoint themselves. Elders are men who submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, submit to the word of God, and then the church appoints them. And that's how the elders of this church have come into our position, but those who are conceited, they don't, they don't carry the burden of headship from a position of submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. They appoint themselves as the authority over the elders and over the church. They're like Absalom at the gate. Absalom wanted to be king, and so as people were on their way to David, his father, to give David, the rightful king, their grievance, Absalom stopped them and said, you're totally right. If I was king, I would agree with you. I would do exactly what you say. And then Absalom sent the people away, disgruntled, and they never had their audience with the king. They never had an opportunity for David to open up the Torah and to go through the word of God with them. These are conceited people who play Absalom at the gate, putting themselves over the church. Dangerous people. The second thing is they understand nothing. This is, this is hard to identify because usually these self-appointed, conceited people who are opposing the doctrine and teaching a different doctrine, they do it with scriptural language. They do it with, with doctrinal language. They don't fight doctrine with stupidity. They fight doctrine with doctrine. And they make a good case. But what Paul says is they understand nothing. And what he means there is they don't know how to rightly divide the word of truth. And again, this is something that he's going to get back to in the, in the second Timothy. They don't know how to rightly divide the word of truth. So they pick and choose. They overemphasize some things and they underemphasize other things. There's no balance there's no balance between their, their view of sin and grace, law and gospel, the, the holy wrath of God and the love and kindness of God. There's no balance. It's either all one or it's all the other. And what Paul says is though they, they, they sound very Christian and they're, they're playing their part very well, at the end of the day they understand nothing because the gospel is totally out of balance. The third thing, and this might be the easiest to spot, they crave controversy and quarrels about words. The way that this is worded is very important. Number one, let's start big and then we'll shrink down. They're oppositional people. 
their, their, their first reaction is no. They, they, they make a habit of opposing the direction of the church. They make a habit of opposing the teaching. They don't come to learn. They come to find out where might I disagree. They're oppositional. And then, so, so their, their demeanor is not one of willful submission. It's not of glad obedience. It's not of let's be a blessing. Let's go along together. Uh, their disposition is one of quarreling. And look at what Paul says about words. Uh, they, the way I would say this is they miss the forest for the trees. In, in a, well, let's be honest, you get a good 60 minutes out of me. In, in 60 minutes, are we talking about a couple words? Or are we talking about the big concepts that were painted? Are, are we picking small things? Or are we going to say, you know, overall, I think that, that, was, that was faithful to the gospel. Paul, Paul says this in verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit, understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. A church cannot survive with that kind of behavior filled with that kind of struggle and strife a church like that is not healthy a church like that does not reach out a church like that does not bear witness very well to the gospel of grace so these are the people to blame i mean that is hard right now remember let's not think about who might we point the finger at but think of ourselves I, I'm thinking of myself. Are there times when I'm puffed up with conceit? When I understand nothing. I, I've just understood it this way, and I'm not willing to bend. I'm not humble when somebody comes to me with an open Bible. Uh, do I ever want to quarrel about words? You see, I can see myself in some of this at times. and I have to be on guard. Lest I become a blind guide. So before we start thinking of the list of people that we might say, oh yeah, that's about that person, let's all of us just do some self-reflection because it's people that are categorized by these things that are the root and the cause of sin, sickness in the local church. These are the people to blame. And yes, we must blame someone. A doctor is of no good if a doctor looks at the, the CAT scan or the MRI and says, you know, I think that all these cells are equally to blame. It's the sick cancer cells that are to blame. And the only hope that that patient has is that the doctor rightly blames the, 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 the sick cells and targets the sick cells. That's the only hope that the patient has. It's the only hope for the, for the local church is to identify who is the problem. It's It's hard. So let me, let me summarize this. And I'm going to read this a couple times. It's going to be behind me because these are big concepts. But I think it's really important for us to get everything together. Conceited, that is self-appointed. Know nothing, that is ignorant. 
and quarreling, that is oppositional people in the church, can lead the depraved, that is the unsaved, the deprived, that's the unlearned, and the gain-seeking, that is the greedy, masses away from Christ. That's a sober reality. The conceited, know-nothing, and quarreling people in the church can lead the depraved and deprived and gain-seeking masses away from Christ. Or, put another way, the self-appointed, ignorant, oppositional people in the church can lead the unsaved, the unlearned, and the greedy masses away from Christ. You have those to blame. You have those at risk. And altogether, those to blame and those at risk, both the leaders and the followers will, fo- will suffer by, from five symptoms. This is how you know that you got a problem. It's the symptoms. Envy, that's destructive competition. Dissension, that is insubordination. Slander, that's gossip and false speak. Evil suspicions, that's paranoia and constant friction among themselves. It's a lack of harmony and brotherhood in the church. So conceited, know-nothing, quarreling people in the church can lead depraved and deprived and gain-seeking masses away from Christ. And altogether, the leaders and the followers will suffer from envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. In other words, to put it another way, let's use the doctor metaphor. Where you see envy, where you see dissension, where you see slander, where you see evil suspicions, where you see constant friction, there you will also find conceited, ignorant, quarreling, depraved, deprived, and greedy people. That's he- I mean, have you ever heard anything as heavy? That's heavy. It's not nice. But we need to be on guard against the symptoms. When we see the symptoms, we must act for the health of the church. Now, most of us have been in church long enough. Not just South Shore, but many churches. Most of us have been in church long enough to have been in a church that, sound, that, that was just about like this. And isn't it distressing? Doesn't it break your heart when the church feels exactly like this? Is that what God wants from us? As I said, to make matters worse, those leading the charge will usually suggest that they are the ones who are safeguarding the gospel. The very people that are causing the church to look like this. Problem is, and this is how you know, this is how you sort it out. Like I'm trying to help you to figure out, how do we sort this out? We don't just say, well, I mean, we can't address it because it's not unkind and unloving and unchristian and unCanadian. We have to address it. 
We have to address it. And the problem is this. The gospel does not produce bad fruit like this. If you have a church that looks and feels like this, then, then the gospel's not there. It doesn't matter how much people are talking like Christians. It doesn't matter how much godliness they put on parade. The gospel is not there in churches that feel like this. And so you're wasting your time going to a church like this. Because at the end of the day, we go, to, we go to God and we go before Christ and he says, get away from me. I never knew you. you. You spent a lifetime at a church where there was no gospel. You see, this is why it's, it's so serious. This is why as an elder, you can't just like, I just don't want to preach this. Like, and I'll, I'll tell you, I'm struggling. I'm struggling to preach this. This isn't fun for me. But our eternal well-being hangs in the balance of this. You see, it's bad doctrine that bears this kind of bad fruit. And Jesus says, by the fruit, or uh, sorry, he said, you will know the tree by its fruit. Therefore, when the local church feels like this, it means there are some cancer cells in the church, and they must be treated. Can't look the other way. What happens to a person who has a hunch? I, th- I, think, I think I have a problem, but I'm too afraid to deal with it. I'm too afraid to go to the doctor. I'm too afraid to get an MRI. I'm too afraid to have a CAT scan. What happens? Does the cancer go away? What happens? It spreads. Same thing in the church. Can't, you cannot look the other way when you see the symptoms that we've talked about. The good news is this. So there is some good news here. The good news is this, that our only hope is Christ. He's the great anecdote to sin sickness in the church and the gospel. You see, see this sin sickness can be treated. How do we treat it? The way that we treat it is we speak the truth in love to one another. And it doesn't feel very loving. It doesn't feel very loving for someone to come and say, I need to talk to you about I'm seeing some envy, dissension, some quarreling. I'm seeing some slander in your life. That doesn't feel like love. But that's love. Just like chemotherapy is loving. You speak the truth in love. That's, and the hope is the best possible treatment is repentance. It's the best possible thing. The best possible treatment is you speak the truth in love to one another. And the elders are especially burdened. We're, we are accountable to God to do this. The best, the outcome we're always wanting is repentance and reconciliation. But if there is no repentance and no reconciliation, what do you do? If the chemo doesn't work, if it's operable, what do you do? You cut it out. And you make it hard for the cancer to stay. Or you ask the cancer to leave. What Paul did with Alexander and Hymenaeus, I have already handed Alexander and Hymenaeus over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. 
Is that because Paul wasn't loving? No, it's precisely because he was loving, both to the Ephesian church and to Alexander and to Hymenaeus. Because it was doing them no, no favors. It was of no benefit for, of them, for them to stay in the church. They needed to be removed from the church that they may learn not to blaspheme. They need to be made aware that the situation is dire. The good news is biblical treatment has 100% success rate. No church that is committed to the word of God and committed to speaking the truth in love will suffer long from this sin sickness. God is too jealous for his church. He honors the preaching of his word. He honors when brothers and sisters come together in unity. He honors when we speak the truth in love, when we, when we say, unless we see good fruit, we're going, to, we're going to search for the bad fruit, and in love, we're going to address it, we're going to treat it. And, and God will act, and he will save the life of the church. And this is exactly what Jesus did in his seven letters to the churches in the beginning of the book of Revelation. You know, Jesus is love incarnate. He said some hard things to those churches. It wasn't because he didn't love them. It's precisely because he did love them. And this message this morning is as hard as it is for me to deliver it. I hope you know it's because I love this church. I love you. I love the Lord Jesus Christ. And I do not want anyone here individually, any family, or this church in total to be sin sick. from love. Thus, we finally get to the 13th commandment. The 13th commandment. 13th instruction. This is a little easier to hear, right? 13th instruction in the book of 1 Timothy. Beware of conceited, ignorant, and quarrelsome people in the church because they're the ones to blame they're the ones that will prey on the at-risk people, the depraved, the deprived, and the greedy. And both those to blame and those at risk will cultivate the symptoms and the church will become ill. It's a sober instruction. And so we confront all conceited, ignorant, and quarrelsome members in the church. Let me just end with some words of challenge. This is a hard message. There's no way around it. And as I said at the beginning, we all must do routine, not once, but routine self-assessment. Just as you must self-assess for cancer, routinely. We all must do routine self-assessment to ensure that we are not the cause of any sin sickness in the church. True repentance can transform an agent of destruction into a force for good in the local church. And, and that's where the analogy of cancer breaks down. You, I, I don't know, I could be wrong about this, but I don't think you can turn a cancer cell into a healthy cell. I don't, I don't know. But you can turn a cancer cell, spiritually speaking, in the church into a healthy cell. Praise be to God. Words of comfort. God is the great physician. If we stay close to his word, our body will remain healthy and we will be protected by the spirit of God who loves his church. 
At Social, we have access to every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There is nothing, absolutely nothing that God would withhold from us if we but ask him. He, he will add more and more blessing to us. He will help us individually, as families, and corporately to grow in godliness, true godliness. He will help us to repent. He will help to reveal to us where we are in the wrong. And if we would but humble ourselves and draw near to God, he will draw near to us. That we don't have to be afraid that, that the end is, is dire. Uh, there is a 0% casualty rate for those who take the treatment. It's not true in the cancer analogy, but it is true in the church. God is the great physician. So let us trust him with every breath, with every interaction, and let us love the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel so much that we are not willing to endure with a sin-sick church. And just for the record, and this is just anecdotal, this is me, I guess as the shepherd though, I don't feel that we are sin-sick. I, I saved this to the end, I guess, because I, don't, I didn't want to pull the punch before, but I praise God for where we are at today as a church. Because I, I believe we are healthy. I believe that we are strong, and I am preparing to grow. I see good fruit in you. I see an increasing harvest on the horizon. And I believe that God is getting us ready, that we are not very big in number. We're small, but we're mighty. And I believe if we continue to commit to one another and to commit to the word of God as we are, and if we commit to do the thing that we're called to do in this church, then, then we will be ready to receive new believers and we'll be ready to nurse them back to health. And we'll help them to grow strong with us. So I think there is good news at the end of this. I do not see South Shore Bible Church as a sin-sick church. I see us as a healthy and a growing church. Praise be to God. Nevertheless, the 13th instruction stands. And we're going to come into seasons in the future where we'll have to revisit this and say, let us beware of conceited, ignorant, and quarrelsome people in the church, and let them not threaten the health of this church. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this church. We are small, but I believe we're very healthy. And though we're not perfect, we have a desire to grow and to bear witness to your gospel and to be a blessing to one another. I pray that you would continue to cultivate this in us. And I do pray, please, at the right time, when we're ready, when we're strong enough, when we're equipped and prepared to make disciples, send us a flood of new believers through our witness and others that we may disciple them in the faith. Pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Spent a lot of time uh, talking about what an unhealthy church looks like. So let's just end by looking at the opposite. What does a healthy church look like? And I, I'm looking at a healthy church right now, as I said. And this is what I believe does capture us. And let us aspire to grow into this more and more. From Ephesians 4. 
I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there's one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. I hope that you go with peace, with joy, even while you reflect on yourself. Be comforted uh, that you seek the unity of this church. And know that we have much more in common than we have that sets us apart. God bless you.